These episodes are all about the motion and forces topic, paper one. Let's take a look at scalar and vector quantities. So all of the quantities we can calculate in physics can be classed as either a scalar quantity or a vector quantity. Scalar quantities only have a magnitude. Magnitude means size. So scalar quantities only have a size. By size, we mean a number. Whereas vector quantities have magnitude, size, and a direction that they work in. So, for example, speed is a scalar quantity because it only has a size. For example, 20 metres per second. Whereas all forces, such as gravity, they are vector quantities because they have a size and a direction. So it might be 20 newtons down or 30 newtons to the right. Because they have a direction, they are classed as vector quantities. Now, distance is a scalar quantity, but it has a vector quantity that it's equivalent to. And the vector quantity is called displacement. So distance is just how far you have travelled. So you may have walked to the shop and you may have gone 30 metres. Whereas displacement is a measure of distance between your starting and end position in a particular direction. So even though you may have walked a distance of 30 metres, your displacement might only be 10 metres northeast, Because the shop might have been around the corner and therefore your displacement as the crow flies is shorter than the full distance it took to walk there. Imagine you're running round a racing track for example, if you start and run, I don't know, say 400 metres, you may end up where you began. And if that's the case, your displacement would be zero, but your distance would be 400 metres. Another example of a scalar quantity that has a vector equivalent is speed. So speed is a scalar quantity, it just has a size such as 20 metres per second. But velocity has a direction as well, so it would be 20 metres per second forwards. Now some other common scalar quantities are mass. Mass doesn't have a direction. Time as well doesn't have a direction, so that's a scalar quantity. Some other common vectors are all your forces, gravity, friction, thrust, weight, because your weight acts down, so that's a direction, and acceleration and momentum. So to summarise, scalar quantities 
only have a size, a magnitude, whereas vector quantities have a magnitude and a direction. We're going to take a look at the names of the forces you need to know for your exam. First up is weight. Weight is a force that depends on the size of the gravitational field strength. So if you go to a planet with more gravitational field strength, you will weigh more. If you go somewhere with less gravitational field strength, you will weigh less. But don't let, don't get this confused with mass. These are two different things and we'll come on to that later. Then we have gravity. Gravity is a force of attraction between a larger object and a smaller object. Thrust, that is a force that pushes objects forward in any direction. So for example, a rocket, forward for a rocket is up, whereas forward for a runner is horizontal. Then we have air resistance. This is a force that slows things down as they're traveling in air. Friction is a force caused when objects rub together and it generates a lot of heat. We have up thrust, a force that opposes gravity, so goes in the opposite direction of gravity, but this only exists in water. So up thrust is only in water. Then we have tension, which is a pulling or stretching force. Centripetal force, or centripetal, depending on how you pronounce it, is a force that acts towards the centre of a circle and it keeps objects moving in a circular path. Now some of these forces are classed as contact forces. There needs to be touching for it to work but some are non-contact. So for example Gravity is a non-contact force because they don't need to be touching for the effect to be felt. If you drop a pen, it'll fall to the floor. Friction, on the other hand, is a contact force because objects need to be touching for friction to be felt. We do have two more forces that we can talk about, magnetism and static. And both of these are non-contact forces. All forces have the unit Newtons, named after Sir Isaac Newton. We can measure the size of a force using a Newton meter. So this segment is on Newton's first law. So Newton's first law is all about balanced and unbalanced forces. So forces usually work in pairs and they work usually oppositely. Okay, so if you imagine a car, 
a car would have thrust acting forwards, but it will also have a force acting backwards, and that might be friction or air resistance or both together. Now, if the thrust is equal to the air resistance, so if those forces are exactly the same size, then we say the forces are balanced. And if forces are balanced, an object can be doing two things. It will either be travelling at a constant velocity, a steady speed, or it will be stationary. Now, when forces are balanced and are the same size, and it's either stationary or steady speed, we say there is zero resultant force. There's zero overall force acting on it. Now, when forces are unbalanced, that means one force is bigger than the other. And if one force is bigger than the other, then it can't be steady or stationary. It will either be accelerating or decelerating. And that will depend on which force is the biggest one. So in the car example, if the thrust was bigger than the air resistance, then it would accelerate. If it worked the other way around and the air resistance was bigger than the thrust, then it would decelerate. So all depends on what, uh, what the object is and what force is the bigger one. Now, Newton's first law is about these unbalanced and balanced forces. Newton's first law states that an object will remain in the same motion unless an external resultant force acts on it. So basically, that just means if they're balanced, it'll be steady or stationary. If one becomes bigger and they're now unbalanced, it will either accelerate or decelerate. Now let's take a look at Newton's second law. Newton's second law can be described by an equation. That equation is force equals mass times acceleration. F equals ma. So F force is measured in newtons, M mass is measured in kilograms, and A acceleration is measured in metres per second squared. So Newton's second law basically tells us that the acceleration of an object is proportional to the resultant force on the object. Put simply, the more force you apply, the more it will accelerate. So a bigger force equals more acceleration. But this also tells us that the larger the mass, the less acceleration there'll be. Basically, objects that have a bigger mass won't accelerate as much as objects with a smaller mass. You could test this out. You could get two skateboards next to each other. You could put 
lots of heavy objects on one and light object on the other and then push them with the same amount of force. You will see that the heavier skateboard won't accelerate as easily. It would need more force to make it accelerate the same as the other skateboard. So that's what Newton's second law is. Now, if you're explaining anything to do with Newton's second law, so let's say you were explaining how a car accelerates and the asked you to explain why that might change if you've got more stuff in the boot, okay? If you've got more stuff in the boot, you have more mass. Always, always, always in your explanation, refer to the formula. Quote it, F equals MA, and explain it. Newton's second law can be investigated in a core practical. This core practical is where we have a ramp and we have a car on top of the ramp and the car is attached to a piece of string and the piece of string has a weight on the end and it goes across the end of the desk and we can add different weights to that weight at the end and the car will get pulled by that weight along the track. Now, if we take some light gates, now light gates, remember, have the little laser and when the car goes through the laser, it records it on the computer screen. So you can investigate the relationship between the force, the mass and the acceleration using that trolley. So what you could actually do is make that trolley heavier. So you could start off with no masses on the trolley and then leave go and see how much its acceleration is using the light gates. And then you could add, repeat it with another mass on the top of the trolley. So the trolley becomes heavier, it's gaining more mass and see how that changes the acceleration as it goes down the track, again, using the light gates. Repeat it again with more mass on the trolley. So your independent variable, the thing you're changing, is the mass of the trolley, and that means you're going to be able to see how that affects the acceleration. Now, you could do another investigation with this. You could actually keep the mass of that trolley exactly the same, but you could change the force on the end. So on the end of the pulley, you have weights. Remember, weight is a force. So you could add more weights, more force to the end of the pulley and see how that affects the acceleration of the, of the trolley. Now, light gates in this investigation are great because instead of using timers and doing your own calculations, the light gates will do it for you. But what's good about these is that it takes away human reaction times. It makes it more accurate. So Newton's second law can be investigated using a trolley, a ramp, a pulley, some weights and some light gates. Now let's take a look at Newton's third law. So Newton's third law states that whenever two objects interact with each other, 
they exert equal and opposite forces on each other. This is often worded as every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Now this, what's important um, with this is that it is two different objects that apply in a forces on each other. So for example, if I leant on the wall, I am one object, the wall is the other object, I am pushing on the wall, so I am creating a force on the wall, but the wall is exerting an equal and opposite force back, and that's why I don't fall through the wall. It's an equilibrium situation. So, Newton's third law, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and it always involves two different objects. Let's take a look at resultant force. Now, resultant force is the word in that we use for overall force. So imagine you have an object moving forwards and it has 50 newtons of thrust. Going backwards, it has 20 newtons of air resistance. So 50 newtons of thrust going forwards, 20 newtons of air resistance going back. So they're in opposite directions. 50 forwards, 20 back. Now, resultant force is the overall force acting. Well, if you have 50 newtons going forwards, but 20 newtons going back, overall, you would have 30 newtons. What you do is take them away from each other. You take the smaller number away from the bigger number, and that gives you the resultant force as a number in newtons. But you also need to state the direction, because forces are vector quantities, they have a direction. So in this scenario, if we've got 50 newtons going forwards of thrust and 20 newtons going back of air resistance, then our resultant force is 30 newtons forwards. So resultant force is quite simple. We just take them away and state what the direction is. Now, if we calculate resultant force and it equals zero, so, for example, if you had 100 newtons going forwards and 100 newtons going back, then when you take them away, equals zero. That means there is zero resultant force. You don't have to give a direction because it's zero. Now, if there's zero resultant force, that means those forces are balanced. Now, that makes sense because we had 100 going forwards, didn't we? We had 100 going back, they're the same number. And that's why we get zero. So when there's zero resultant force, the forces are balanced. And we know from earlier that if they are balanced, that object will either be stationary or steady speed. So when there's a zero resultant force, it's either steady or stationary. 
Now, if we take those numbers away from each other and it isn't zero, it, there is a number, then there is a resultant force. So like the previous example, 30 newtons forwards, there is a resultant force. That means those forces were unbalanced. And if they're unbalanced, the object will either be accelerating or decelerating. And again, it just depends on which force was the bigger one. Let's take a look at the difference between weight and mass. Weight is not the same as mass. And in fact, when you say you're getting on the scales to weigh yourself, that is scientifically wrong. When you get on the scales, it's your mass you are measuring. So mass is a measurement of how much stuff, so particles, matter, is in you or the object that you're measuring. So mass is how many particles of matter is in that object and its unit is kilograms. Whereas weight is a force that is acting on that stuff, on those particles. So mass, mass is a measure of how much stuff is in the object, whereas weight is the force acting on it. Now, force is measured in newtons, and therefore weight is newtons. Weight is a result of gravity. This can be linked using the following formula. Weight equals mass times gravitational field strength. So the gravita gravitational field strength on Earth is 10. Well, we round it to 10. This means an object that has a mass of a kilogram would be attracted towards the centre of the Earth by a force of 10 newtons. Whereas if that one kilogram object was actually on Mars, Mars only has a gravitational field strength of 3.8. So that would experience a weight, a force of 3.8. So we can see that an object's mass won't change no matter what planet it is on. But its weight will change because weight depends on the amount of gravitational field strength. So say, for example, my mass was 60 kilograms. On Earth, 60 kilograms times the gravitational field strength, which is 10, I would weigh 600 newtons. Whereas if I went to Mars, my mass is still 60 kilograms, but times that by the gravitational field strength, which was only 3.8, then my weight will be a lot less. So my weight can change, but that's only because it depends on gravity. Now, weight is a vector quantity because it has a size and direction. So my weight would be 600 newtons acting down. Whereas mass is a scalar quantity. It doesn't have a direction. My mass simply would be 60 kilograms.
So that's the difference between weight and mass. Weight is a force that depends on the amount of gravitational field strength, whereas mass is the amount of particles in a substance. Let's take a look at stop and distance. So in an emergency, a driver must bring their vehicle to a stop in the shortest distance possible. Now there are two components of stop and distance. Stop and distance equals the thinking distance plus the braking distance. So the thinking distance is the distance a vehicle travels in the time it takes for the driver to apply the brakes after realising they need to stop. So if I was driving down the road and I see a dog run onto the road, my brain is still coordinating seeing the dog and realising that I need to put my brakes on. So your car, my car would still be travelling a distance then. Okay, so the thinking distance is the distance my car travels as I'm thinking about applying the brakes. But then I hit the brake and my car doesn't come to a stop just like that. My car will decelerate and then stop. So the braking distance is the distance a vehicle travels in the time the driver has pressed the brake before coming to a complete stop. So if we add the thinker distance and the braking distance together, we get the full stop and distance in metres. Now, there are different, different factors that can affect your stop and distance. So, some of these are linked to your reaction times. So, for example, tiredness, drugs, distractions such as using your mobile phone and alcohol. All of those slow your reactions and increase your reaction time. And if we increase your reaction time, that means your thinking distance will be bigger. Therefore, the overall stopping distance will be bigger. So what's that tell? That's telling us basically that being tired while driving, being on drugs or alcohol or using your mobile phone is bad because it will increase your stop and distance. Why? Because your, your thinking distance will be bigger. Why? Because your reactions are slower. Now, there's some factors that actually increase the braking distance, not the thinking distance. So some factors that increase the braking distance are poor road and weather conditions, such as gravel, icy weather, snow, wet weather. It might be poor vehicle conditions such as worn brakes or worn tyres and it might be more mass in the vehicle and all of these will increase the braking distance because they reduce the friction. There'll be less friction and if there's less friction 
then it's harder to make that car come to a stop. It'll take a longer distance before it does come to a stop. So just to summarise, stopping distance is made up of thinking distance plus breaking distance. Factors that affect the thinking distance are drugs, alcohol, tiredness, mobile phones, because they slow your reactions down. Factors that increase the breaking distance are poor weather, poor vehicle conditions, more mass in the vehicle, because they reduce the amount of friction. When a force is applied to the brakes of a vehicle, there is work done between the brakes and the wheel, and this reduces the kinetic energy of the vehicle. So basically, when we apply the brakes, work is done. It means energy is being changed. It's being changed from kinetic into heat. Because it's in the brakes, the brakes are getting hot. So kinetic energy changes into heat and we call that work done. And that causes the car to slow down. But the temperature of the brakes would increase. The faster a vehicle is travelling, so if you, your vehicle's going at a high speed, the greater the braking force um, you would need to stop it in a certain distance. But remember, cars only have a certain amount of force they can put on. So large decelerations actually can cause the brakes to overheat because they're trying, they're like there's too much work is being done, too much energy is being changed. So we can actually calculate how much work is done, how much energy is being changed by doing the braking force times the distance. So that is energy equals force times distance. But you can also use, because work done is the same as energy, we can also use kinetic energy equals half times mass times velocity squared. And that will also tell us how much work is being done. Let's take a look at distance time graphs. Now, it's easier to explain these in diagrams, so we will keep this short. But for any object that's moving, its distance that it travels can be represented by a distance time graph. Now, on this graph, time goes on the x bottom axis and distance goes up the y axis. So you can plot over time What's the distance that has been travelled by an object? Now, a horizontal line on a distance time graph tells us the object is stationary because its distance is not going up and it's not going down. So a horizontal line is stationary. A sloping line, so like a diagonal straight line drawn with a ruler, is a steady speed. Okay, so a straight line with a ruler is a steady speed. If we have a curved line and that curved line's going up, so it's increasing, then that is acceleration. A curved line down is deceleration. 
Now, one thing that we can show on a distance time graph is that an object is going back to its original position. And that would look like a slope and line going back down towards the x-axis. Okay, so it's showing that the object is going in the opposite direction. Now, the greater the gradient, so that means the steeper the line on a distance time graph, the faster the speed of that object. So a, great, a steeper gradient means a faster moving object. Now we can actually calculate the speed of the object using the axes. Because we've got time on the x-axis and distance on the y-axis, well we know the formula for speed is distance divided by time. So we can take a line on the graph Look at the distance it's travelled and go down to find the time it took and do the distance divided by the time and that tells you the speed of that object in metres per second. So that is distance time graphs. Graphs that can represent the journey of a moving object. Let's now discuss velocity time graphs. Now, velocity time graphs are better explained with a diagram, so we will keep this short and sweet. So, a moving object's speed, brackets velocity, can be represented on a velocity time graph. On that graph, on the x-axis on the bottom is time in seconds and velocity on the, going up on the y-axis in metres per second. Now, a straight line with a ruler but diagonally up that is accelerating a horizontal line so a flat line on a velocity time graph is not stationary what that will be is a constant velocity a steady speed because it will have speed it's just that speed isn't going up and it isn't going down, so it's steady. A line going down back towards the x-axis, so a diagonal line going down towards the x-axis again, that actually means decelerating. Its speed is getting less and less and less, so it's decelerating. Now, stationary stopped on a velocity time graph is represented by a line actually horizontally on the x-axis because that is zero velocity zero speed on the x-axis now if you wanted to represent increasing acceleration well acceleration is a straight diagonal line up increasing acceleration you could show that with a curve up now because we have velocity on the y-axis and time on the x-axis, we can actually calculate the acceleration as a number. Because acceleration, the formula for it, is change in velocity divided by time. So we can choose a line on the graph, look at what its start and velocity was, what its velocity got to, Take them away so you have its change in velocity 
and divide it by the time it took. And that will give you the acceleration of that object. Now, another thing that we can actually calculate with a velocity time graph is the distance that object has traveled. Now, in a distance time graph, that's very easy to do because you've got distance on the y-axis. So you can just read the number off. You can see the distance it's gone because distance is there. But on a velocity time graph, we have velocity on the y-axis and time on the x-axis. So working out how far it's travelled, its distance, is not as easy. To calculate the distance travelled, what we have to do is calculate the area underneath the velocity time graph gradient. So we use our math skills to do this. So if you're working out the area underneath the total graph, so if you want to know the total distance it has travelled, you are going to have to separate that graph up so that it forms triangles and rectangles. Okay, because we know very easily how to calculate the area of a rectangle or a triangle. So if we can separate it up into those shapes, we can individually calculate the area of each of those and add them together. So remember, to do the area of a triangle, it's half times the base times the height. So we multiply the base times the height and then we half it because it's a triangle. But an area of a rectangle is just base times height. So if we calculate each area, we can then add it together to get the total distance. However, the exam question might ask you just for a, it's one part. It might say, calculate the distance travelled whilst accelerating. And first of all, you will have to look on the graph and decide which section shows acceleration. Once you've found that section, you calculate the area only under that one section. And that'll get you the distance travelled. The following content coming up is for higher students only. That is both higher triple and higher combined. So if you do foundation, you do not need to listen to the next bit. This is higher content only. We are going to look at momentum. So momentum is the product of mass and velocity. It is a vector quantity, which means it has both a magnitude, size and a direction. Basically, what momentum is, is the strength of movement. So, for example, an elephant has no momentum when it's stationary. That's because it's got zero velocity. When it begins to walk, it will have momentum in the same direction as it's travelling. And the faster the elephant walks, the more momentum it will have. Now, this is because momentum equals mass times velocity. Therefore, if you have zero velocity, you will have no momentum. And therefore, the more velocity you have, the more momentum you will have. So in this equation, momentum equals mass times velocity. Momentum, when we calculate it, the unit is kilograms 
meters per second. And that is because mass is kilograms, velocity is meters per second, so if we put them together, the uniform momentum becomes kilograms, meters per second. Now, imagine you have a, um, a car traveling at, let's say, 20 meters per second. Okay, if it's traveling at 20 meters per second, it will have momentum. Now, that car then crashes into a wall and it comes to a stop. Okay, it slows down and stops so that its velocity is now zero. That car has experienced a change in momentum because to begin with, it had momentum and then afterwards, it went to zero momentum as it stopped. So that is a change of momentum. Now, an equation that links change of momentum with force and time is force equals change of momentum divided by time. So if we know what the change of momentum was of that car, and how long it took to change momentum, so the time, we can actually calculate the force that was exerted on that car. And that's how safety features work. Crumple zones, seat belts, airbags, they all increase the time it takes to change momentum. And if you increase the time it takes, to change momentum, when you do change of momentum divided by that bigger time, it gives us a smaller force and that smaller force makes it a lot safer for the people in the car. Now, when objects collide, the momentum before a collision always equals the momentum after collision. So we call that the conservation of momentum. And this is in a closed system. This is very rare that this happens in a closed system because often um, we have waste energy um, and other things. But usually we'd say the momentum before is equal to the momentum afterwards. And that allows us to calculate the speed afterwards. So if we know the momentum of two objects, if we know its speed of them separately before the collision, we know their masses, we can calculate the momentum of the first object and calculate the momentum of the second object. So these are traveling separately along a desk, say, for example. So object A would have its own momentum and object B would have its own momentum. And if we add them together, that tells us the total momentum before they collide. Now, imagine one of the objects goes into the back of the object in front and then they kind of click and join together and continue moving together. If they continue moving together, we can work out what speed they're traveling at now because we, we know the rule is the momentum before and after is the same. 
So if we collect, um, if we calculate the momentum beforehand, so if we calculate the momentum of object A and B on their own and add them together, that momentum is the same after they collide. And we will know their mass is the same after they collide. So that means we can then do the calculation of momentum divided by their mass. And that would give you us their new speed. So we can actually use the, the concept of conservation of momentum in our calculations to allow us to work out the new speed after the collision. So just to summarise, momentum equals mass times velocity. The more mass you have, or the higher your speed, the more momentum you will have. If you change speed, you will have a change in momentum. And if you can increase the time it takes for you to change momentum, it will reduce the force, making it safe. We also have conservation of momentum, whereby the total momentum before an event and a collision is the same as after the collision. And we can use this to calculate new velocities after a collision.